0: If the bibles in the chairs you'll find Matthew 16 on 821 page 821 it'll go into the next page as well at the end of chapter 15 of Matthew Matthew records that after feeding this crowd of 4000 men plus the women and children Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and left that hellenistic Decapolis region and traveled, it says in verse 39 of chapter 15, to the region of Magadan. Scholars today aren't actually quite sure what that name refers to. Some think it could be referring to the region of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from, and that's a decent guess, but our most certain guess is that it was at least a Jewish region. And one of the main reasons that we can think of it as a Jewish region is because of the re-entry of the groups of characters that we see in verse 1 of chapter 16, which is where our text begins. It says, at the very beginning there, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him. Now, if you've been following along in our the Unexpected Kingdom series in Matthew's Gospel, the entrance of the Pharisees won't be very surprising to you. In fact, you may be so used to them that you might just want to roll your eyes every time they appear. Great, these guys again, you might say to yourself. And I wouldn't blame you if you did, because we've gotten to know these Pharisees a little bit by now. These were men who had deemed themselves as the ultimate followers of the Jewish religion, ultimate purists, so dedicated to obeying the law and staying holy themselves, that they wound up devising additional rules and laws that God than those that God had actually given. Because they thought by making up these traditions and making up their own rules, that by following them they could keep themselves pure and stay as far away from breaking God's law as possible, and therefore earn and or maintain the favor of God for themselves. So those are the Pharisees. There's a whole lot more that can be said about them. I've said some things about them already throughout our series, and they're going to come up again later, but perhaps the Sadducees are a little less familiar to you. This is actually the first time that Matthew mentions them in relation to Jesus, He did mention them briefly in relation to John the Baptist's ministry all the way back in chapter 3, and Matthew will mention them again in chapter 22, but this here in chapter 16 is their first recorded encounter with Jesus in Matthew's gospel. So you could come to this point in the narrative having heard them referenced briefly already, but then here they are again and say, I wonder who these guys are. They're obviously different from the Pharisees in some way, and that's true. Matthew mentions them, as I said, again in in chapter 22, and it's there that he specifies a little bit more. You could turn just a couple of pages over and see that Matthew says about the Sadducees in verse 23 of chapter 22 that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. That's basically what Matthew says gives us about the Sadducees just a few chapters later. They did not believe in the resurrection. In other words, they did not believe in life after death. They weren't talking about the resurrection of Jesus here. That hadn't happened yet. That wasn't something that people were debating because it hadn't happened. They were in disagreement regarding life after death. And the biblical concept of life after death would be more fully developed later in the New Testament, but there was already at that time old testament support for an understanding that there was hope for eternal life for the righteous and eternal judgment for the wicked but evidently the sadducees didn't buy it and i suppose on one hand you could think of this as them being kind of hyper conservative because they would also often say that their sole authority was moses The five books of the Pentateuch in which there wasn't explicit reference to life after death. Whereas, as some of you already know perhaps, the Psalms spoke of life after death. Some of the prophets did contain references to eternal life. So there's a sense to which you could put the Sadducees in a a category of being super conservative because they were just holding on to the, the first writings of Moses. But really, on the other hand, the Sadducees way of thinking was actually quite progressive in relation to Jewish teaching at that time because it had already been established in the Jewish religion based on the writings of the whole of Old Testament scripture, including the poets of the Psalms and the prophets, that there was life after death. But the Sadducees called it all into question and evidently rejected it. And so here Jesus is in Matthew 16 and he finds himself being confronted by both, you might say, the religious conservatives on one side and the religious progressives on the other. The conservatives, of course, I'm talking about the Pharisees, the hyper-conservatives, we could say, who would make mountains out of molehills, who drew boundaries stricter than the scriptures did, who were quicker to judge than to repent themselves, who cared more about external perfection than the faithfulness of the heart. And then the progressives. The Sadducees, who were skeptical of revealed Scripture, who placed their own thinking and maybe even their own feelings above God's Word, and who eventually opposed and even rejected what had been revealed by God. And both are wanting to oppose Jesus. Both are offended by Jesus. And I think it's just wonderful. Jesus' life, Jesus' message, Jesus' ministry just so transcends the way we think as humans and our own human norms of organizing thoughts and values that when He shows up and when His message is spoken, He's got both extremes wanting to fight Him. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but maybe there's something here about if you've got both extremes ticked off because of the message and person and ministry of Jesus, you might be doing something right. Anyway, that's where this passage starts. The wickedness of the Pharisees and Sadducees in verses 1-4. through 4. Let's take a closer look at what exactly is going on here. Remember, I already said it was just one chapter previous in Matthew's record of Jesus' ministry that Matthew showed us this big confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees here at the beginning of chapter 15. There were no Sadducees in that encounter as far as we know. And in that confrontation, the Pharisees wanted to criticize Jesus and his disciples for not following the elders' tradition of hand-washing. They had made up these rules about hand-washing because of their legalistic obsession with clean and unclean foods and being clean and unclean before eating. But as we already saw, this was actually completely disconnected from what God had actually revealed about the hand-washing necessary. And so, of course, Jesus is committed to his father and the true law much more than any earthly or human tradition or rule. And so Jesus, in the beginning of chapter 15 and into the middle of chapter 15, corrects them sternly, even calls them hypocrites and accuses them of breaking God's law. And so in that context, you can just imagine that these men did not enjoy being continually rebuked by this nomad, backwater rabbi from the despised town of Nazareth. And they wanted to take him down. And so what do these Pharisees evidently do? They get backup. They get the Sadducees. They call in reinforcements. However, Pharisees and Sadducees were typically opposed to each other. They were not accustomed to teaming up in a theological debate or a doctrinal dispute, because they disagreed on the resurrection. And this was a big deal for both sides. They had a scriptural difference. But Jesus is so disruptive, so upsetting to both of their sensibilities, that they were willing to form this sort of unholy alliance in order to at least try to diminish Jesus' influence to undermine His teaching and even possibly try to remove Him from the people. And that's exactly what Matthew tells us they're doing in the second part of verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test Him, they asked Him to show a sign from heaven. He says that they wanted to test Him. Now, I suspect that all of the young people in this room, who are students, are not sad that you do not have to take a test at school today. (laughs) But overall, a test is pretty ordinary and overall a, a harmless occurrence in our society. And even after we're done with schooling, we can sort of test in different ways. You can be in a conversation with someone and you phrase something a very specific certain way to test and see how that person will respond. Or as a work supervisor you might give someone a task to test them and see how they will do. But the word test in verse 1 of chapter 16 is quite different than a school test or a kind of supervisor employee test. It's actually the same word that Matthew used in chapter 4, to describe what the devil was doing with Jesus in the wilderness. And so what the Pharisees and Sadducees evidently were doing here was not well-meaning. It was not driven by pure motives. It was not a sincere inquiry into whether or not Jesus truly was who He said He was, which is why Jesus would say at the beginning of verse 4 that it was an evil and adulterous thing for them to do. What they were doing was wicked. Now you might read this as someone who has perhaps wanted to see a sign from the Lord before and think, Sheesh, I mean, I can kind of relate to a request of a sign. I would love if God would show me a sign from heaven. How is that such a bad thing? I mean, good grief. A a lightning bolt in the clouds or a voice from the sky would sure help my own faith journey. But here's the thing. That's not even quite what these guys were looking for. Yes, they called for a sign from heaven, but they weren't sincerely looking for proof They were looking to make Jesus stumble. They were looking to trap him just as the devil had done. They wanted to get him in some kind of inconsistency or perhaps they knew that he wouldn't answer in that way and try to then undermine his his influence with the people. Just like Satan had done in the wilderness temptation of Jesus with the stones and the nations and the temple, these Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus. So yes, in a way, wanting support for the claims of Jesus is not a bad thing. It is very normal for a rational being to want to understand things or see evidence or see proof. But on the other hand, and friends, this is so important for all of us who are already followers of Jesus. On the other hand, wanting evidence to verify the claims of Jesus when he's already proved it over and over and over again, is devilish. You see, the Sadducees and Pharisees themselves already had every reason to believe. Jesus' teaching, when examined according to the law of God, was consistent. Jesus' miracles were a display that he was who he said he was. But the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't want to believe. That was the problem. Their desire not to believe was so strong that they were willing to ally themselves with those that they would deem heretics in order to try to devise a plan to get rid of Jesus. Be kind of like Rockies fans and Giants fans coming together over their hatred for the Dodgers. Or the Broncos and the Raiders fans coming together because of their disdain for Brandon's Kansas City Chief Super Bowl champions and he just goes. (laughs) They didn't want to trust Jesus. They wanted more reason not to trust Jesus. They wanted to give proof for the people to not trust Jesus. They wanted to trap him and sort of justify their lack of faith in Jesus. Not find true reasons to believe. And so they asked Jesus to perform a sign from the heavens. That's what this means, a sign from heaven. A miraculous sign from the sky, so to speak. Possibly already having a notion that he wouldn't do that. Because of the way he had already conducted himself in his ministry. And possibly, therefore, hoping that his not doing so would sow seeds of doubt in his followers, would perhaps garner support back to them and their influence, and even perhaps, as I already said, to justify themselves in not believing. Which is so often the case, my friends, I'm afraid, when people today speak of wanting a sign. They're more interested in justifying their lack of faith than truly wanting to believe. And of course, Jesus sees right through it all, and his reply in verses 2 and 3 might seem a little strange at first, but here it is. He answers them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What Jesus is basically saying here is you ought to be better at interpreting the signs that you've already been given. You can look at the sky in the morning and the evening and get a little bit of a sense of what the weather might be like, but you can't look at the Messiah staring you straight in the face and realize that the kingdom of God is here. That phrase, the sign of the times, at the end of verse 3, is sometimes interpreted as pointing to events that would happen in the future, as if Jesus was pointing to some eschatological occurrence that had yet to happen. But I don't think that's accurate at all. In the context, Jesus is clearly talking about something that was happening at that very moment. They had the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in their midst. They had his transcendent and sound and faithful teaching, but they wanted more. They had his miracles, but it wasn't enough. There had been a literal voice from heaven at the beginning of his ministry when he was baptized that probably would have been reported to those who weren't present for it where it was heard, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. But it wasn't enough because they didn't want him for their Messiah. They didn't want his message. They wanted a Messiah that fit their expectations, that furthered their agenda, that supported their devotion to tradition that's why they asked for a sign healing the sick feeding the poor casting out demons nah i want a real sign i want a light show in the sky i want me some crap circles i want to hear a voice from heaven myself beware this kind of thinking Friends, we must avoid thinking that we don't already have exactly what we need in God's revelation of himself to us in his son. If you want a sign regarding God's will for you and his message to his people, crack open your Bible and start reading. Look at all that it reveals about Jesus. Look at all that it says about God's kingdom. Study the life and the message and the ministry of Christ. And what you'll find is actually exactly what Jesus is talking about at the end of verse 4. He says, No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, even if you are newer to the Christian faith, or perhaps not a believer at all, you've probably heard of the prophet of God named Jonah. He's a little bit famous for being a guy who ran away from the Lord and wound up in the belly of a great fish. But if that's all we get from Jonah, we've missed the point. Because Jonah is not simply a story about how you should obey God or else a whale might eat you. In fact, that's not really what it's about at all. And because this isn't a sermon about the book of Jonah, I'm just going to have to summarize briefly. Jonah is all about God's unexpected grace to unworthy people. His grace to bring good news to a pagan nation and his grace towards his servant that didn't want to share it. God called Jonah to share with the Ninevites a call to repentance, but Jonah didn't want to because the Ninevites were awful people. And instead of obeying the Lord's call to extend his good news of grace to these unlikely recipients, Jonah gets in a boat and travels in the opposite direction in direct disobedience to God. So God sends a dangerous storm that threatens the lives of everyone on that boat. And it wasn't until Jonah acknowledged that it was his fault and literally told them to throw him out of the boat as a sort of sacrifice to stop the storm that it did. And Jonah deserved to be left there for dead, having disobeyed the commandment of God. But God didn't leave him. He sent a great fish to swallow Jonah and rescue him from death in the depths. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and nights, after which Jonah was then spit up onto dry land, and then called again by God, and then Jonah that time obeyed. There's obviously a whole lot more to the book of Jonah, but that's the gist. And when Jesus said to these Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 4 of chapter 16 that the only sign they would get was the sign of Jonah, their minds would have gone to the story that I just told you, and the point of all of it, that there was this guy who was to be a herald of God, who then was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the sailors in peril. A guy who was then as good as dead in the depths of the waters, who was then delivered after three days and nights. And so what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees in a rather veiled, parabolic way was, just like you saw Jonah give himself up just like you saw Jonah delivered from death just like you saw him proclaim the good news from God so you will see now with me look at me listen to me and my teaching pay attention to my message you want a sign you're looking at him that's what Jesus was saying That's what he meant when he said, you're not very good at interpreting the signs of the times, are you? You can look at the red sky and figure out what might be coming the next day, but here's the Messiah standing right in front of you doing all the things that you should expect the Messiah to do, and you're rejecting him. They should have been able to see a correlation between Jonah's message of repentance and Jesus' message of repentance. They should have been able to see that Jesus' words were consistent with the word of God. They should have been able to see that his miracles verified his divine power and his messianic anointing. They should have seen that they already had all the sign that they needed, but instead they rejected him. And in a rather disingenuous way, asked for more. And that is why Jesus said what he said next in verse 6. Jesus said to the disciples after verse 5 tells us that they got to the other side. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, watch and beware. In other words, he warns them. This was a warning to those disciples in that very moment, but brothers and sisters, there's warnings here for us too in our time and place. It's a little bit after that conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees that he says this to his disciples because it says that they went on this trip to the other side and then they did that, and then there he says this, he gives them this warning It's a little bit later, but Matthew records it right away, right after that event, because there is a connection between that conversation and the point that Jesus is making. We can fast forward to the end of the paragraph and see Matthew say in verse 12 that the disciples did eventually understand his point, but at first, Matthew tells us that they didn't. They didn't understand it at first. That's where actually I think the first part of a sort of implicit warning here Lies. And that first warning is one of, or against, I should say, warning against forgetfulness. This is an interesting one. It's in relation to the recent chat with the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus says to them in verse 6 Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But then the disciples say in verse 7 But we brought no bread. Now, when I first came to this portion of the text, I was a little unsure what I thought about what I was seeing various authors and commentators saying about this. Much of what I was reading contained commentators criticizing the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' point here, saying they were, the commentaries, saying that the disciples' remarks about not having any bread indicated that they had forgotten that Jesus had just recently miraculously provided bread. And it didn't seem to me that that was the point that the disciples were making when they said in verse 7 that they didn't have any bread. It seemed to me that they were just a little bit slow to realize that Jesus was speaking in a metaphor as he often did. That when Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were like, "Uh, but they didn't give us any bread. However, the more I studied and meditated, and thought, the more I think I see the commentator's point. Because look at verse 5. They had forgotten to bring any bread. There was apparently some amount of discussion, at least a note of concern present in their group of the fact that they had forgotten bread. And there, Jesus, as the master teacher, takes the opportunity where bread is the topic to then turn back to the conversation that he just had with the Pharisees and Sadducees, using that bread theme to illustrate a spiritual point about the danger of the thinking and teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see what I'm saying about what Jesus was doing there? Well, the disciples weren't following him. They didn't catch his spiritual point veiled in a metaphor. That much is true. But it's because they were thinking about the fact that they didn't have bread. And so I think you can make the argument that their words here regarding not having bread doesn't necessarily mean that they were worried about it and unsure how they would ever get any bread. However, look at verse 8. Right after they discussed it amongst themselves and said, we brought no bread, Jesus aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you do not have bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves? Do you not yet remember the baskets that you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered and so on? So Jesus' words here do seem to indicate that to some extent the lack of bread was leading them to a lack of faith because he then calls out their lack of faith as he'd done before. He knows that they're discussing their need for bread amongst themselves and they must not have been talking about it in faith filled terms. In a way that Maybe they would say, well, we forgot the bread, but no worries. The master is here. He's already fed thousands by miraculously turning small portions into huge portions, so certainly he can change no bread into enough bread for us. It doesn't seem like that's what they were talking about, because if they were, why would Jesus say, oh, you of little faith, and do you not remember in verses 9 and 10? So I do think there is a forgetfulness issue here. I don't think it's the main point of the passage, but I do think it's worth leaning into a little bit and remembering that it is far too often that we become functionally forgetful when it comes to what God has already done and letting that forgetfulness influence our confidence in what he has said he will do. It is so easy to be in a perpetual state of dwelling on the problems of the now instead of reveling in the glory of what he has already done and therefore resting in the promises of what he will yet do. And so the warning for us is this. Beware spiritual forgetfulness. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. Beloved friend, if you are a Christian, God has made you one with Christ. Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are seated with him spiritually now in the heavenly places. You've had your sin imputed to Jesus' account and his righteousness imputed to yours. You've been made a new creation through spiritual rebirth. You've been transformed and transmitted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have been made dead to sin and alive to God. You have been granted full access into the presence of the king. You have been granted a relationship with your creator who loved you before the dawn of time and predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son for all eternity. That's what God has already done for you in Christ. Now, if you're someone who's never turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, but all of that sounds really great to you, oh boy, it is. And you can receive Jesus. You simply repent and turn to Him in faith. You believe on Him. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk with you about about that. And our prayer team will be standing in the back after the service to spend some time with you if you would like, in discussing and praying about this. But my Christian friend, don't forget who God is and who Christ is and what He has already done for you. Now here's the second warning, and this is really where the story ties all together. The second warning is a warning against false teaching. He actually says to them twice, both in verse 6 and in verse 11, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've already seen how the first time He said it, the disciples didn't understand what He was talking about, but by the end in verse 12, we see they did understand it. So at first, there's some kind of preoccupation with a lack of actual bread, but after Jesus warns them regarding their forgetfulness, they do realize in verse 12, they understood, it says, that He did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this second warning centered around? It's centered around teaching. A warning against false teaching. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The teaching that characterized those religious sects. Which was teaching that went beyond what God's Word revealed. Teaching teaching that I talked about a little bit at the beginning of the sermon, this sort of hyper-conservative Pharisee approach in which they were overly committed to traditions that they had created to improve their own holiness as if anyone could do that. And in so doing, ironically, missing the heart of covenant faithfulness that God required. Mercy, justice, love for God, love for others. The Sadducees were the skeptics who went so far down the road of any kind of progressive thought that they wound up denying biblical truth, rejecting scriptural teaching on life after death, because it didn't fit their standards or the way they thought through things. And it is about that kind of teaching that Jesus says, beware. He warns against it, and he uses Leaven as a metaphor for that kind of teaching because leaven is something that can have a huge effect even in a very small dose. You put a little leaven in the mixture and you get dough that rises. You can actually change flour into bread through the use of leaven or yeast as we would perhaps call it today. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, if even just a little bit of Phariseeism, or just a little bit of, to coin a word, Sadduceeism, is let into the mixture of the pure kingdom call of Christ. The real McCoy, so to speak, of following Jesus. Add that into that, and you can wind up with something altogether different in a very bad way. So maybe think of it this way At the heart of of the gospel is both truth and love the truth that God is holy that man is sinful that we stand under his judgment because of our sin and that unless we repent we are damned but also the love of that holy God towards we sinful people love that was set on us Ephesians 1 says before the foundation of the world love that graciously chose his children simply by pure grace love that sets us apart for eternity with him so at the heart of the gospel is both truth and love but if the legalistic self-righteousness of the Pharisees or the liberal we could say self-focus of the Sadducees gets inserted into that mixture, you wind up with an extreme of unbiblical proportions. In other words, false teaching. For example, with a bit of this hyper-conservative Pharisaism, you can wind up among the ranks of what I like to call the self-righteous internet discernment police. The people who always seem to have something that they're incensed about to a nitpicky extent in evangelicalism. Constantly arguing with people in social media comments. Seemingly eager to spread the latest controversy or whatever. And the fact of the matter is they're usually more afraid of and feeling guilty about their own sinful failures and trying to hide from them by sewing up and adorning themselves with the fig leaves, so to speak, of everyone else's issues like Adam and Eve did to hide their shame. Now, there is nothing wrong with discernment. In fact, it is vital to have biblical discernment. But friends, when self-righteousness and legalism contaminates the truth, the truth that we must stand for, what can actually happen, tragically, is that discernment winds up becoming nothing more than loveless pride and self-righteous judgmentalism. And what you have is no longer any kind of biblical discernment at all. Uh, a contemporary, uh, a preacher and teacher of our age named Paul Washer said it this way, all of your Reformed theology and good doctrine can be annulled if you do not love those who oppose you. And so with just a dash of Pharisaic leaven, a commendable zeal for the truth can become prideful lovelessness. And on the other hand, with some overly progressive Sadduceeism, Friends, you can wind up in the ranks of the deconstructing or the disentangling movements. Those who attack and seek to break down the sound doctrine of the centuries of church history supported clearly by plain readings and interpretations of the scriptures. Pushing the envelope on matters of gender and sexuality. Condescending towards anyone who is more conservative. Resistant to letting the Bible say what it simply says. Afraid to do so because if they do, they're going to have to make some changes. They're going to have to make some sacrifices. They're going to have to die to self. They're going to have to submit to their Creator. They're going to have to acknowledge that He calls the shots, not us. And again, similarly as with discernment, there's nothing wrong in theory with thinking critically, rationally, examining evidence, trying to figure out whether or not what you were taught your whole life as a child is what you actually believe, you must do that. That is important. But so much of what we might call deconstruction has tragically become for many a search for how to be free from the reign of Jesus. And so you sprinkle in some of that Sadduceist leaven and a commendable desire for love and even for rational thoughts or critical thinking can morph into this watered down and toothless message that actually lacks any truth at all. So just a little bit of yeast can transform flour and water into bread. And in the same way, just a little self-righteous legalism, just a little self-focused progressivism can change sound teaching into false teaching. And just as Jesus called his disciples in our passage today to beware that kind of teaching that would lead the men of the Sanhedrin to reject the kingdom of God proclaimed by his king, Jesus, the word now calls us today to beware the same. We haven't got a literal Sanhedrin is part of our religious culture, but we do have voices in the church today, abroad, I don't just mean this building, both on the extremist conservative or extremist progressive side in Christianity. And we must beware. But even worse, we've got fleshly sin-stained hearts. And so, while we Heed the call to beware false teaching. Don't take that as watch out for those other people out there who are doing the things that these guys were doing. The warning is to keep watch over our own hearts. To guard against those same kinds of tendencies to slip away from the centrality of the kingdom of God and His Christ and His gospel and His truth and love. So do watch out for those guys out there whoever they may be who would lead you down a path of false teaching in one of these ways but don't assume that you can't wind up there all by your little lonesome and so lean on your elders open up yourself for input from your fellow believers but most of all dive deep into the word of god and gaze at the glories of jesus With Jesus at the center of all we think and say and do, we will be well positioned to look out for the leaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do desire to be people who are aware of and who stay away from any kind of false teaching. Whether it be the most obvious rank heresy or even a little leaven. A little sprinkle of kingdomless thinking and belief. A little dash of Pharisee. A little dash of Sadducee. We want to beware and we want to avoid But we cannot do this in our own strength. And so help us as a church on the whole and certainly as individuals and families to lean on you. Yes, to lean on each other as well. That is vitally important. You have given us each other to bounce our ideas off of and fellowship and be corrected and encouraged and edified. But most of all, may we look to your word And may we beg for Your grace. And as we do, Lord, also help us not to be forgetful of what You have already done and what You have already revealed about who You are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer quietly for just a minute. Amen.